Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include credit and visibility, my interview with PHH Mortgages, Chris Savvy on subservicing, and the wary eye on the Fed. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, PHH Mortgage. For over 30 years, PHH Mortgage has provided industry-leading mortgage services and helped countless home buyers and homeowners find financing solutions to meet their needs. Their reputation is based on building and maintaining relationships that last long after you get the keys to your home or complete your refinance. Whether you're looking to purchase a new home or refinance your current mortgage, PHH Mortgage offers a wide variety of loan options, including conventional, VA, and FHA. Learn more at phhmortgage.com. What color of front door sells the best? Some say black, although in a related topic, red is the most popular. Doesn't that mean that red sells the best if there are more red front doors? Anyways, statistics are interesting things. LOs everywhere tell me that the deals are harder, and as an indication of both statistics and harder deals, A report by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau revealed that 11% of Americans have a thin or stale score file, and therefore it's impossible to generate a current valid credit score for them. Another 11% are considered to be credit invisible, meaning they don't have a credit file with any of the three major credit bureaus. That's a total of 22% of the adult population of the United States that doesn't have a credit score at all. As an investor or lender and One of these adults wants to buy a home, even with a meager inventory of for-sale homes. Do you have a product for it? For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show PHH Mortgage's Chris Savvy to talk about subservicing. He's Senior Vice President of Enterprise Sales at PHH Mortgage and joined the company in 2017 to manage all growth for PHH's residential, commercial, and reverse subservicing units. He's helped PHH grow its servicing book to 1.4 million loans, or $300 billion in UPB, on PHH's way to becoming the most highly decorated servicer in the U.S. over the past two years, through the Fannie Mae, Star, and Freddie Mac Sharp programs for servicing excellence. As a subservicing executive for the past 18 years, Chris has onboarded hundreds of subservicing, MSR co-issue, and recapture clients representing more than $100 billion-plus of servicing transactions. He's built two subservicers from the ground up, managed projects in eight different countries, and held leadership positions at CoreLogic, LenderLive, Walter Investment, and Arthur Anderson. I know that at the Western Secondary, the talk was that mortgage rates last week hit a 20-year high, which is amazing. They're over 7%, 7 7.25%. With with these high rates, we're also seeing volatility and and yes, some of the the Fed's indecisiveness on what the the terminal Fed funds rate range will be is playing into that. But with the volatile originations market and interest rates continuing to climb, what impacts are you seeing on the servicing market this year? Yeah, so I'd categorize the servicing market as being in a serious state of flux, right? So I talk to you know hundred originators a year, and most of them they've had to perform painful layoffs, their originations are way down. And as a result, they're, you know, retaining far less servicing, um, simply because they need the cash to run their business. I'd say 12 months ago, you know, people were retaining 50, 75, even 100% of their servicing. 
Today, it's down to zero to 20, and that's the most common percentage, even some of the larger players. So that's a massive shift in just 12 months. So what that's doing is small to mid-sized players are having to sell their existing service and portfolios to get more capital to support the business. And so you're also, you know, in my world of servicing, I'm seeing a lot less activity in the servicing market and the movements. People are staying put with their existing providers, mainly because, you know, their, their hair's on fire for, you know, the rifts that they're having to go through. Um, they're selling their books as a top priority and pushing projects like selecting a new subservicer till 24. So this is a surprise because I thought a lot more activity and a lot more books would be changing hands this year. And the stat that I've been, you know, thrown out with clients is, you know, so inside mortgage finance, you know, that's sort of, we, we look at those numbers, um, quite frequently and between Q4 of 22 and Q1 of 23, Subservicing only increased by 20 billion, which might seem like a big number, but the whole market is 4.2 trillion. So it's a half of 1%. Whereas a year ago, subservicing increased 100 billion in a quarter. So that's an 80% decrease. So what's interesting, as the originations are going down or, or holding servicing, at least subservicing trading hands is, is you know, following suit. And then the last bit, that I'm seeing, you know, key driver, you're seeing a lot of seismic shifts in terms of, you know, M&A and pending M&A, you know, you've got, you know, it's pretty public around, you know, SPS and SLS potentially up for sale. You've got ServiceMac losing the, you know, the, the massive home point portfolio due to the acquisition by Mr. Cooper. Um, you've got a few uh, of the largest ones like Simlar, you know, still under consent order. There's just a lot of going on at the moment that originators are trying to sift through. Um, and, you know, the subservicing market is a bit in flux as well. So hopefully we're starting to see the dust start to settle here in Q4 going into Q1, but, um, you know, still remains to be seen for 24. There used to be a popular trope in the mortgage industry that everybody hates their subservicer. And I'm, I'm sure that's changed uh, due to advances in technology and, and prioritization of the customer experience. But what are the, you know, give me two or three reasons here that MSR owners, such as IMBs, banks, credit unions, or MSR investors are looking to upgrade their subservicer. Yeah, um, I'll call it the three C's, right? So cost, um, that's always number one, two, three, four, five. Um, there's customer service. Um, and then what I would call is culture fit, which I'll go into. So so cost savings, you know, subservicers are always going to compete with each other on price, right? That's always, that's a given. But you've got to look at all the nickels and dimes. I've been saying this for years um, to get to a true apples to apples comparison, which is not easy given some of the convoluted structures that are out there. Um, and you've got to look beyond fees, right? One of the things we do and some others do is we actually look at 10 different components in measuring total ROI, right? In why you would make a subservicing move. And some of those metrics are, are speculative. They're based on future forecasts, but some are like hard cost savings. So in this environment, particularly, right, where everybody's trying to look to cut, I was with the CFO yesterday and he said, I got nowhere else to cut. But if I can move my subservicing to you, that can literally mean hundreds of thousands, if not millions of a year, right? And that's in just by making a switch of their subservicing. So cost is, is definitely number one. Number two is around customer service, right? What is the performance of the subservicer? So 
I'm seeing a lot of noise from one subservitor to the next about measuring customer service, right? And touting the different metrics to show how great they are. Um, but if there's any one third party or one metric or, or, or you know one body, if you will, that's going to measure servicing excellence, it's got to be Fannie and Freddie, right? Because they are the biggest holder of mortgages in the country. So they know a thing or two about, you know, who's a good servicer or not. So, you know, for those that don't know, um, the Fannie Star program and the Freddie Sharp program, they measure everything around customer service, around average speed of answer, abandonment rate, how you manage defaults, and just dozens of metrics to keep servicers like us and everybody else accountable for keeping borrowers happy and keeping them in their homes. So when I think of if I'm a you know new client and I'm looking for a new subservicer, I'm going to look at the awards that Fannie and Freddie gave because they're in the weeds and they can measure better than I can or any you know business developer to say how great you are. Look at the metrics. How do they measure it? Um, so that I always point people to those sort of um, industry standards as a starting point. And then the third culture, this is kind of the you know touchy-feely, fuzzy intangibles. It's about finding the subservicer that's the best fit for your business, right? Not all subservicers are created equal. And you're right, Robbie, they 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 tend to get a bad rap. Um, you know, the bar is very low in subservicing. We as a as an industry have gotten better, but a lot of people don't think that yet. So what's important to each client, right? That's how you got to look at it. You know, do you care about risk and compliance? Great. How many people does your subservicer have to protect your book? Do you care about recapture, right? Most people don't think about recapture with their subservicers. That's fundamental if you want to keep your borrowers intact. So great. How does your subservicer help you, you know, um, keep your customers from going out and, you know, getting their next loan somewhere else? And then if you want to sell your MSRs, your whole loans, is your subservicer also a buyer? These are kind of things that we we look for and we ask clients. So I've said this quite a bit. Behind an originator's people, their number one asset is their MSR book. And you know, not to get all high and mighty, but you know, as a subservicer, we have to be an extension of our clients. We have to wear the company t-shirt, we have to take care of their bars, we have to promote their brand. That's a lot of responsibility. And there are a lot of subservicers that are just vendors, right? That's all they are. You want to find a partner who's going to be an extension of your business that can help grow your business and can be that that cultural fit. So those would be the, the three C's, cost, customer service, and culture. We've certainly seen that over the last year, servicing has made the difference between companies being profitable or unprofitable. I want sure. to talk about cost because you said cost is kind of one, two, three, and four. <laughs> in, in today's tight market, everyone is looking for cost savings. What do the overall subservicing economics look like today? And how do they compare to servicing in-house? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm a math major. For me, it's all about the numbers. That's, you know, you got to get into the weeds. And for decades, the traditional way of picking a subservicer was to ask for a price sheet, compare the providers, pick the lowest cost, and off you go. Right. But the problem is these price sheets, like I said, are convoluted. They're not standardized. There's a ton of a la carte nickel and dime charges. Um, some people charge for co-branding. Um, or reports, or even their own servicing data, right? Some charge for starting the loss mitigation process, right? Um, you think 
in terms of the particular dollars, you, you see a base fee of six or seven bucks and you think you're paying six or seven bucks. Well, when you add up all those nickels and dimes, it's, you know, 12 to $15 per loan. Um, that's still happening today. And many less sophisticated, you know, originators are just trying to race to the bottom for the lowest price. It's not always, you know, what you want to do. And sometimes you get what you pay for. So like I said, there's this fundamental shift happening where CEOs, CFOs are not just looking at total price, but they're looking at, you know, those components I talked about for ROI. Um, here's some of the things you should, you should think about. It's beyond just the fees is can you reduce, you know, your servicing oversight? Um, can you do recapture? Can you manage default better? Um, and that's when you're comparing subservicer to subservicer. The second part of your question was around, you know, how do you compare in-house to actually subservicing? Economics are quite different, right? Because if you're servicing in-house, you have fixed costs. And typically, if you're using a subservicer, it's about 12 to 15 bucks per loan. On average, per the MBA, if you're servicing in-house, you're paying about 15 to 19, 20 bucks per loan, um, plus the fixed cost. And then the last metric that I give, you know, um, I think I'll be, I've been saying this for 15 years, I'll probably say it for 15 more, is if you have, and I, I ask this question all the time, how many loans do you need to service in-house? And the number used to be 25,000 units to make it cost-effective. I asked all of my clients, are you better served by servicing in-house? You can, but that number for break-even versus a subservicer is about 50 to 75, potentially even 100,000 units to make it cost-effective versus not just PHH, but any other subservicer. Um, it sounds very self-serving. It sounds that you know we just want to push everything to you know subservicers, but we as an industry, we're taking on the on the risk. And that comes at a cost. Or do you want to do it yourselves? And if you get hit with a compensatory fine by Fannie or Freddie, you're paying that. So it's more of an insurance policy and leave the servicing to those that are doing it um, as a core business. So they should do it better, faster, cheaper. You and I both alluded to at different points in this interview that servicing technology and the borrower experience have, have both markedly improved in recent years. But I want to ask you, what are the new trends in terms of servicing technology and the borrower experience, particularly with the changing demographic and new homeowners? I love this question. Um, so there's this there's this massive movement, particularly among newer homeowners, Gen Z, towards self-service, right? I got three teenagers. They never want to talk to anybody on the phone, right? They all have iPhones, but they don't want to talk, Um they, the only time they want to talk is if they need money or if something goes wrong, right? Um, well, borrowers are kind of the same way, um, especially younger borrowers. They don't want to talk to their servicers. So what's happened, particularly in the probably like last three to five years, is we as a servicing industry and a subservicing industry, we've had to put more tools into the hands of each one of our borrowers or our clients' borrowers, right? And so... Some of the new technologies you're seeing, and you should ask if you're selecting a subservicer, do they have these things in place? Even simple things like electronic statements, do are they branded with the loan officers? 
um, their pictures, you know, so that they can get their next refi with them. Uh, the portal, right? The website that they log into, is it just check your, you know, balances or is it more of a financial planning tool? Does it have like personalized banner ads that are specific to each individual borrower? Does your service or subservicer have a mobile app so they can communicate back and forth through their phone? Again, borrowers would rather, um, you know, communicate via chat, right? That's another thing, chat bots, rather than pick up the phone. They'd rather do a chat for 45 minutes. And we're seeing that in the metrics that are coming through. And then two others that I'm seeing, you know, videos, right? Um, every borrower getting a video once they're transferred, every, every borrower getting a video when escrow analysis comes through to educate them um, so that they don't have to pick up the phone. And then, you know, the hottest, you know, word out there is run AI, right? There's a ton of algorithms, you know, PHH and others are doing to do things like predicting potential defaults, right? There's a lot of things going on in the background that most folks don't even see um, that's helping both the bar experience on the front end and the portfolio management, the investor side on the back end. So, I mean, you know, I'm biased, obviously, you know, but, you know, subservicers, they've come a long way, uh, particularly in this movement towards self-service to keep ahead of this changing demographic. Um, so there's just, there's just a lot of options out there. So I'm recommending people go out there and, you know, see what's out there in the market for tech. Yeah. Maybe I should have asked you earlier in the interview, but can you run us through some common misconceptions about subservicers and, and help dispel some of that? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot. Um, the, the biggest one really is people think there's this Herculean amount of work to do a servicing transfer. It's just not the case, right? The short answer is this, from saying, hey, I wanna move to BHH or somebody else to actually boarding, it's 90 to 120 days. And we as a subservicer, we're doing 90% of the work. Um, we still need to help from the client, but it's, you know, it's a few hours a week and it's definitely not a full-time job, right? There's typically three big steps. There's agree on the pricing, we talked about that. Um, Number two is contracts, right? That's another myth. They think the contract process is going to take 30, 60, 90 days. It's actually the easy part. The bad news, the, the contracts are very long. They're 100 pages plus. The good news is they're very standard. They protect both sides. That that moves pretty quickly. And then the third step is integration, right? 80% of servicing is all the same, right? We collect payments, we issue statements. It's that 20% that is unique to each individual client that's what we focus on. How do we maintain your brand? How do we take care of customers? How aggressively do you want to manage default? Things like that. But you can't treat all clients the same. Um, that's another myth. It's just put them all into one bucket and treat them all the same. Some subservicers operate like that and they're, they're, they're fine at doing that. But if you have a REIT or an MSR investor, they're, they're big deals. They care about yield right? IMBs, banks, credit unions, they care about their customers and their brand and their members, right? So you can't treat them all the same. And that is changing. That is one of the biggest myths that is, is changing is that subservicers are really, uh, like I said earlier, kind of putting on the t-shirt and, and being that extension. So if you can get through that decision point, the rest is fairly easy. You just have to find a subservicer that's best fit for your business. And finally, before I let you go today, do you have any final thoughts for our podcast listeners in terms of best practices for managing your existing subservicer or selecting a new one given the market challenges we're all facing? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess this, this is, you know, it's in my blood now doing this as long as I have. It's my plug for servicing and subservicing in general. You know, originators, you know, originations, they always get the attention. But with volumes down, you know, subservicing in particular has these this real opportunity. This is not hype. There's opportunity to be a hero in the PL and for retaining your customers. I mean, where else are you going to be able to find after all the cuts and rips you've made? to be able to make a simple switch and actually save, you know, a million dollars or more. Um, that's how I think subservicers are getting people's attention. And, and here's the deal. It costs very little effort to take a quick pull of the market, see what's out there. This is what I'm telling people. If, if you've been with your subservicer for, you know, call it longer than three years, you know, as I like to say, go to the doctor. Right. Do your annual subservicing checkup. You might just be fine where you are, but you also might be in a lot of pain. What are your symptoms? Right. And it's okay to do a price check. Um, you're probably leaving money on the table if you haven't done it, you know, in the last 24, 36 months. And there are better options out there that frankly might be a better fit for you. The the industry's got a lot more advanced, all the technology stuff we just talked about. And take advantage of the newer partners that are out there and how they've changed. It takes very little effort to take that look, and it could be worth, you know, potentially millions of dollars in savings, and you could be up and running in 90, 120 days. So that's where I'd leave it with. I thought this interview was great, Chris. Uh, I really enjoyed it. There's a lot of valuable insights for our listeners. Thanks, Thank you very much for making the time to talk to me today. Yeah, I appreciate it, Robbie. The Jackson Hole Summit began yesterday, though the focus has always been Fed Chair Powell's speech today. Central bankers are in a much harder time relative to last year. As a year ago, consumer-level inflation in both the U.S. and the euro area was still running above 8%, so the path forward was pretty clear for policymakers. Currently, inflation has fallen, and there's much more doubt about how sticky it will end up proving, and thus how much more central bankers will need to do. Yesterday, two U.S. Federal Reserve officials signaled the central bank may be close to done with interest rate increases given slow in inflation, but one of them held back from ruling out further hikes. For the moment, the market feels there will be no hike following the next meeting on September 20th, but roughly a 40% likelihood of a hike in November. Home price appreciation, as well as wage growth, remain top of mind for the Fed. Consumer spending came in stronger than expected in July, increasing 0.7% versus 0.4% forecast, while core retail sales increased 1.0%. Housing starts increased 3.9% to a 1.452 million seasonally adjusted annualized rate. The starts are 19.2% lower than the same period last year, as high mortgage rates weigh on the market. Industrial production also expanded in July, However, that was due mainly to higher utilities output as a result of higher-than-average summer temperatures. Manufacturing output contracted in July and was revised lower in June as well. Yesterday's economic releases included durable goods orders declining 5.2% month-over-month in July, but excluding transportation, durable goods orders increased 0.5% month-over-month, and Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey showed the 30- and 15-year mortgage rates hitting their respective highest levels since June 2001 and April 2002. For the week ending August 24th, 30 and 15-year rates rose 14 basis points and 9 basis points to 7.23% and 6.55% respectively.
Today's calendar brings just the final August Michigan sentiment, though we do receive important speeches from Fed Chair Powell and ECB Head Lagarde. We begin the day with agency MBS prices a little changed, and the 10-year also unchanged at 4.24%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. An 80-year-old woman was arrested for shoplifting. When she went before a tough judge in the South, he asked her, What would you steal? She replied, A can of peaches. The judge then asked her why she'd stolen the can of peaches, and she replied that she was hungry. The judge then asked her how many peaches were in a can. She replied, six. To which the judge said, then I'll give you six days in jail. Before the judge could conclude the trial, the woman's husband spoke up and asked the judge if he could say something. The judge demanded, what is it? To which the husband muttered, she also stole a can of peas. (laughs) Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, PHH Mortgage. For over 30 years, PHH Mortgage has provided industry-leading mortgage services and helped countless homebuyers and homeowners find financing solutions to meet their needs. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, Search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcasts from.